Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Lisa, it's so wonderful to see you, even though our times were a little bit off. Oh, heck, we managed it. We did. We, like we've managed so many other things in the past. Uh, just to let our listeners know, uh, uh, Lisa and I have been actually good friends for many years. Uh, so in some ways, we're sort of catching up. But uh, one of the reasons I wanted to have her on is not only to tell us a little bit about her life or backstory, but also uh, the work she does, of which a great part uh, is related to human sex trafficking and human uh, slavery. Uh, Lisa and I have had the joy of, wow, being in all s different parts of the world. I think we were in, <laughs> we were in Mungod in uh, uh, India, and then we were in uh, Italy, uh, Italy at the Vatican, and where else? We were in Cape Town with Tutu. Yeah, <laughs> so, a few birthdays. And, yes, and, and also I guess we were up in Seattle. Is that where we first met? I can't remember. No, that was Vancouver at the. Oh, Vancouver. Yes, yes. So, uh, with H squared, His Holiness. And we've been in New York together, and I'm sure other other places. But anyway, enough of that stuff. Uh, so, Lisa, I think, uh, and what I always try to do is to uh, talk to my guests about sort of the early parts of their life, which turned them into the person they are today. And, you know, for some people, um, their early life is traumatic or challenging or difficult. And maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, how you ended up uh, actually becoming a photographer. Yeah, well, you know, it, it's funny how you, you sort of are somewhat established and you're out in your career and all of a sudden all the little dots on the path go back to the beginning, which is being a wee bit, you know, young. And um, I remember being a kid and things were a little chaotic in my household. We, um, we didn't have the easiest situation. And I remember very distinctly that I would take solace by going to my mom's bookshelf in the, in the living room and I would pull out these really big books on anthropology. And I would settle down and look at these pages full of people that were so covered in mud and the earth and pigment that, frankly, they resembled the earth itself. And I, I really believe that from my childlike perspective, that I saw them as unshakable, you know, like I saw them as totally solid. And um, I didn't feel that way at all. And I actually remember walking out in the middle of the street one day on Louvain Drive and determining, like just making a declaration that when I was old enough, I was going to get out of here and I was going to go find these people and learn what it was that they had so that I could bring it into my own life. And then, you know, you move forward some years and I was always interested in the arts. I love to write and I love to draw and I love to play music and I love to photograph. And um, <clears throat> years later, when that became my chosen path, you know, I really realized that that's, that was a seed. Like sometime it's our hardship or our trauma that will actually put us on the path to our destiny. And I, and from my own life, I have virtually no doubt of that. I mean, it's really something. So uh, would you consider yourself a self-trained photographer or were, did somebody mentor you 
or did you actually go to school for that? Well, I, um, I, I never did go to school for any of the arts, actually, um, except that I did go to school for fashion design, and then I finished uh, that in, in college, and I thought, oh, that was fun, but no, that's not going to be my path. Um, I was largely self-taught. My aunt and uncle, who in part raised me from fourth grade on um, to give me a solid upbringing, um, gave me my first camera. It was this little Olympus, and my cousin, who was four years my elder, um, had this makeshift dark room and he was taking a class in school. And so like any young cousin, I started photographing and I would make these really bad black and white prints in, in our bathroom or his bathroom. And, um, but then later I had a, a mentor named Ted Lawfer and he was a photographer who was, um, very familiar and skilled at developing Sivachrome, which is a silver dye bleach process. It's, you know, a wet, type of uh, printing. And he became my mentor for sure to teach me how to um, print work. And, and that actually was a huge gift in my, in my young life and in my career later, you know, really something. What uh, I oftentimes will describe you as a humanitarian photographer, uh, although we're going to talk about human sex trafficking and slavery, which I know is a passion of yours to eradicate. Uh, but how did the humanitarian side of it, was this related to your interest in anthropology or documenting the lives of others? Is that was the initial path, but how did it shift over more aligned with this um, issue of human sex trafficking and slavery? Yeah, well, the origin path really began when I was quite young, when I, I left the country for some five years and, and lived with different um, uh, tribes and people that lived closer to the earth. And of course, like anyone else that would go into the world, I brought my camera. And the camera became a way of um, very gently and with reverence creating these relationships with people. And then I, I learned so much from them. And, and at first it was really an act of trying to heal my own life, right? Like, and, and I, through photographs and through travel um, and through the world, I, I've learned so much about possibility. You know, when you see how different everybody lives, it creates this notion of possibility. And that body of work sort of became about diversity and all the different ways to be alive and all the different ways in which our differences really make us one. Like my whole mission is really about inspiring unity. And then we fast forward to actually, I think when we first met you and I, which was at the, the World Peace Summit in Vancouver um, with I think His Holiness the Dalai Lama and other Nobel laureates. And I was the exhibitor there. And while I was there, I was approached by a woman named Bryn Friedman who, um, who was a, I, she was a big supporter uh, at that time of an organization called Free the Slaves. And she's the one who really let me know about what slavery is. Now I'd known there was some trafficking, like many people, and I assumed it to be in small numbers, and I assumed it to be only sex trafficking. But when I learned about the enormity of those numbers, at that time there was some 27 million people that were trapped in slavery. Well, that number today is actually 50 million. But I was so struck that it, it could exist like that. Like I thought it was taken care of, you know? And back then, like organizations couldn't even get funding because nobody believed that it really existed. And I think that 
that was disturbing to me, um, given that I am a photographer and my entire occupation is based off, off of really observing others. And yet I had totally missed it. So that was my entry point. Uh, before we go any further about that, uh, maybe you can tell us um, how many countries you've actually traveled to, if you know the exact number or an approximate number, because <laughs> I know it's a hell of a lot. Yeah, my my work has brought me to over 150 countries around the world and six continents. I'm still um, uh, longing to go to the human <laughs> deprivational place, Antarctica, but I'll get there to see those glaciers before they melt during it. Uh, well, hopefully uh, we'll do something about that, but yes, uh, I should... we, we, we shall see. Uh, so... I know you've done a number of uh, books of photography documenting uh, your travels. Uh, before we head off a little further and deeper into the issue of sex trafficking, what uh, are those books or um, trips that have most inspired you um, along the way? Well, in the um, umbrella work, as I call, call it, um, um, I have, I think, six or seven books at this time that have been um, out to the public. And uh, two of them are, are on modern-day slavery, and all the others are really about, um, one is called One Breath, and as you might imagine, it's about this connectivity between all of us, this notion of global family. Another one is called The Intimate Expanse, and that one is really about people's relationship with their land, how there's a difference between people living on the land like we do in the West where we're constantly conquering it and building and, and doing all these marvelous um, but um, man-made things versus people who, who live with the land and who have a, a reciprocity with, with not only land but the other <clears throat> uh, plants and animals that, that they live with and, and must survive from. You know, there's a real beauty there um, that I think we can all learn a lot from from indigenous cultures, you know. Actually, I just uh, recently had Uriah Seladwin. I don't know if you know her. Uh, she's an indigenous Mayan, and uh, she writes on, uh, uh, she's a PhD, and she writes on these topics of, frankly, indigenous wisdom. And I think, can, and gladly so, that now uh, the work over uh, thousands of years of indigenous peoples is now being recognized as something that is incredibly invaluable. Um, let me ask you a question. Obviously, you are a person of this world, which is uh, the Western uh, world. How would you say uh, indigenous peoples, uh, their lives are different uh, than ours in terms of the demands on our time, in terms of what they're focused on, uh, and whether that's um, shelter, food, or family? What are your insights there that you think can uh, make us see, one, the world in a slightly different way, but also offer us um, some insights into how we might uh, improve ourselves? I'm, I'm not trying to put you on the spot and make you under this incredibly deep uh, aspect of uh, our nature, but I think uh, clearly you've gained incredible insights. I would, I would say that the construct of time is very different. I mean, we're in such a linear plane, I think. And um, 
the key difference that I notice between we who are um, doers in our Western world and uh, those that are more being in places that are, you know, where they live very close to the earth, I, I think those are the two biggest differences that I see. So time is wide open and it's not thought about in the same way. It's thought about seasonally and with the, with how the sun arcs or the moon arcs, you know, I mean, in some of these places, people are still using stars as a compass to travel uh, deserts at night in order to avoid the heat. And in other places, um, you know, like a man will lay on a boat. I think Elizabeth Lindsay, our friend, was telling us a story of a man laying on a boat and it, and, and it was in Polynesia somewhere. And a, I, I think a Western person commented on, oh, this person is doling away his day, you know, lying on the boat. And instead, he was actually counting the waves that then he could use when he goes out and fishes. So there's all these, you know, misconceptions of what people are are um, spending their time doing when they're being. I remember being on the Amazon and I was on the back of a canoe for, I don't know, 12 hours a day. And I was looking around and listening to some music and having conversations. And, you know, at some points just looking out at this beautiful river and the pink dolphins and it was marvelous. But the fellow, this, this beautiful Indian man at the front of the boat spent all those hours literally watching the river watching where he knew the river like he knew the back of his hand and he could see where the stones were and where to avoid and where the shallows were and um he was so meditative and time for him was utterly different um so i think there is a difference there's a there's such a contrast there that um is appealing and curious to me yeah you know it uh, in some ways it uh i think has to uh relate to sort of not always having to fill every second with something Boom. in the sense of uh, uh, planning on what, you know, has to be done in your mind, but sitting with nature and just contemplating. And in some ways, nature's, I think, talking to you. And I think uh, in the modern world, we've really lost that. Yeah, I think so too. But yeah, this notion that um, everything is entwined, that that the tree does not exist without us existing and everything is is sort of dependent on the next thing is is I don't know a way that I I, I prefer to see the world and and perhaps the way that it, it really exists as opposed to us making everything so separate and and creating all these differences and file boxes to put things away so that we have an understanding of them I I think that's a misuse and um, um, we'd gain so much more from the notion well, of activity. No, I think you're right. I, I mean, I think so many people either are naive to the fact or ignore the fact that there is the or there are these relationships with other animals or with nature itself that uh, fundamentally we evolved to be in sync with, and uh, and they support each other. And if we ignore them or uh, not pay attention to the message or what uh, it's telling us, uh, we can um, very much disrupt or destroy the balance that has been going on uh, for millennia. And I think we've seen this in a, a, a variety of situations uh, uh, by not recognizing that reality. And I would suggest, I think you would agree, that um, 
fundamentally, we should think about how do we go back to that, uh, not to continue to separate ourselves. And in fact, uh, as you know, there is a huge um, it, uh, situation now with people who are stressed, who are anxious, who are lonely, because uh, fundamentally, there is this complete disconnect. And part of it is, uh, I think, how for whatever reason, I think probably it's related to a capitalistic society where emphasis is placed on and value is placed on what you have. And people get lost in this narrative of power, position, and money as defining success or happiness. And uh, for many people, uh, there's nothing there. And I think only until we get back to this connection with nature uh, can we understand the true nature of reality and our place in the world? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think uh, especially now where connectivity vis-a-vis -vis our phones and computers and this constant ability to be connected allows for us in some ways to to experience the opposite of that, where, you know, being liked on, on our social media pages um, you know, it's it's a false value, and when you really sit before somebody and have have that notion of presence with them, well, that's where the cup gets full, right? And um, it's easy to miss when we're constantly being seduced by all these distractions. It's crazy. Well, you know, there's literature that shows that uh, close to eighty percent of the time we're either lamenting about a past, of course, which we can't change, or anticipating a future which we can't control. And I think uh, one of the greatest causes of suffering for so many people is attachment and craving uh, for things, yet uh, the most value fundamentally is in the journey, and that journey is, the, uh, is one of connection. And I think that's very much what you do in your travels. Yeah, indeed. And, and actually, the, the whole beauty that I've really found in sharing the work is, is based on connection because what happens is, you know, what's not allowed for in life is if we see someone that's different from us or um, of a different race or a different religion or, or perhaps someone that is, is homeless, just in, in whatever way that, that we see them that they're different, it, we're afraid to look at them. And in fact, an imposition is one of staring, right? But when you have a photograph and you can stand before the photograph and stare at it, you know, really pause, it allows for presence. And then presence allows for this sort of visceral connection to that human being in a photograph. And I'll tell you, that is, I, I watch people stand before someone in a photograph and I could see this the spinning in the head like things are happening I remember once I was in um, Texas and I was showing my work and uh, at one point uh, a woman uh, this Texan woman with this beautiful big hair and you know lovely accent comes up to me and she says you know Lisa what's your mission and I said well why do you ask and she commented that she'd been walking around and um, looking at all these images of people from all over the world, and she stood before this one of these Muslim women that were completely covered in their hijabs. And so you would just see this one woman's piercing eye looking out to the viewer from the photograph. And she said, I was standing in front of this image, which she pointed to, 
and I realized how much prejudice I have and how much fear I have of this person. But then as I stood before the image, I started to feel this love. And with that, you know, she, she, she started to cry. She had this tear coming down her face. And I said, well, that's my mission. And that's what I think a photograph allows for is that sense of to be with something without imposing upon it, but to really have a sense of communion, if you will. And I think in that it, it develops empathy and curiosity and beauty. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. And obviously through your own work, and I think all of us know the work of different photographers, it can really pull you in. And frankly, I think it can change your life if you are truly able to sit with it and recognize um, the power of so many uh, photographs. I mean, obviously I'm quite familiar with your work and <clears throat> I'm always extraordinarily impressed and moved uh, by so many of the pictures. Um, but let's now switch over maybe to, uh, we're talking about the beauty of a photograph, uh, but uh, let's talk about documenting uh, the horrors or trauma of uh, human slavery or sex trafficking. And what was your first, I, I know you mentioned that someone pointed this out to you, but what was the first experience you had actually uh, photographing this or getting engaged with this? Well, the first time that I was actually out in the field working in the element, um, experiencing what it was like was at these brick kilns in India. And I remember going into the brick kilns and it was so hot. And it was uh, like walking into ancient Egypt or Dante's Inferno. I mean, it was, it, the heat was tremendous. I, I think it was over 110 or 20 degrees plus when you're near the kilns, because these kilns are like these big towers of smoke that go into the sky, you know, these kilns. And um, all around those kilns are buried bricks, which are being baked. And so you have the heat of the kiln on top of it. And I was witnessing, you know, men and women and children, all of them covered in this thick blanket of dust, um, stacking bricks on their head up to 18 at a time. Each brick weighs over three pounds. And you have to imagine they're stacking these bricks, walking to trucks, trucks nearby, unloading them, and then monotonously just repeating that task for like 16, 18 hours a day. I, the first time I was there, I remember seeing these, these really elderly people stooped over very thin carrying bricks. And I, oof, I, I started to tear up myself and um, the abolitionist who, who had brought me in quickly grabbed my arm and shook me and said, Lisa, you can't do that. You, there's, you just can't do that here. It's not safe. It's not safe for you. It's not safe for them. And I, I think in that instant, I sort of realized that, you know, what I had the ability to do was to show that this is existing in the world. And I had to sort of relinquish um, all the rest to trusting in the, the people that are actually working on the ground as activists to help these people and let them do their work, which is astonishing work. Um, and that I was there for a purpose. And I think that sort of changed my whole way of being in the situation. Um, but it was really in the brick kilns that I first experienced 
what slavery is, and it was very intense. Well, so maybe uh, you could explain to us how you get there, because you mentioned abolitionists, but uh, because it's not as if the uh, uh, slave owners, if you will, or the sex traffickers are saying, hey, Lisa, uh, come and document <laughs> the horror that we're uh, 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 have created here. Uh, how does that work? How do you get access sort of to get in and do the work that's so important? Yes, well, um, I worked with, with partner organizations in different countries um, that were indigenous to those countries and really locales of the community in which any particular type of slavery would be happening. As an example, I would be documenting child trafficking on Lake Volta um, in one part of Ghana. And so I'd be with a certain group of people on the ground there that would, like five people, for example, that would bring me in. And then I would be going to a different part of Ghana where I'd be transferred over to a different people that were working in that particular field. So they were really my guardians, my translators, and um, my watchers, because whenever I'd go into a space, I'm very much... Um, in a zone behind a camera and working extremely quickly because I only really had access for like 10 to 20 minutes at a time because it was so unsafe. Um, so they would be sort of on the, the outskirts looking in and I would have somebody shadowing me constantly um, that was looking out to these other people to make sure if, if we had to run or stay or what was going on. But they were really the ones that gave me access and through their working undercover within those communities of people in that dire, those dire situations, um, that, that was a, you know, the trust that was really needed for me to be in there and to work safely. Well, it's hard for me to imagine that in all the, uh, different times you've been in these situations, uh, tell me about instances where in fact you were caught or threatened or, uh, what happened to you in some of those? Well, I feel for all that I've done in all the, the situations, whether it's going down illegal gold mines or into brothels or um, in these brick kilns. I mean, I've had a few close calls, but nothing nothing that ended up too bad. Um, I know, you know, it's funny. I, I, I did my first body of work in the United States after many years um, because when I came out with my first book, Slavery, which you're familiar with. Um, I remember bringing it to local people. This ties back to what we were talking about, by the way. Um, and they kept saying, well, oh, those countries, they can't, you know, those governments aren't taking care of their people. And there was always this, it's happening elsewhere. And there was this form of blame and ignorance. I mean, people don't know, you know, but I knew that, that in fact, trafficking and slavery is all occurring in our own country here in the United States too. So I um, embarked upon a, a project in Washington, D.C. to go into areas where people are sex trafficked. Um, and that experience, I, 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 she in front of a woman who has an organization called Courtney's House, was previously a, a sex slave herself. And she's just this remarkably amazing, badass woman that helps pull minors off of the street. She's tremendous. Um, and I encourage anyone to look out for her organization. But she actually brought me in down on the streets of DC and the, you know, like four in the morning when all of DC is utterly asleep and you get down to, um, I think it was K Street or someone near at the foot of the embassies. And, and suddenly there's back to back 
car traffic, all with buyers for sex. And um, that experience was was rather harrowing. And, you know, she brought me down to really get, give me a feel for how the lay of the land is down on those streets. And though I was wearing, you know, kind of field boots and jeans and a North Face jacket, I was also wired with cameras, little spy cameras. And um, um, she brought me down and... You know, they're, they're so well organized. They have watchers that are on bikes that are always looking at what is occurring down on the streets. There's people that are taking the money itself and making sure that some money is sent electronically on phones. There's the pimps who are dealing horrifically with young girls that are, are new to the scene. And as I walk through there, to make it a long story short, at one point, um, a group of traffickers cross the street all, you know, through this traffic the actual cars on the street and they all surrounded me and um you know they're they're all pressed up against my body and I thought oh my god I didn't know if I'd make it out of there you know especially because I was wired and while they're grabbing me that wasn't the worst of it I was thinking well what if they found these that I was wired I really thought you know I could end up dead and um but Tina bless her heart quickly went into um you know quick form and and, and basically told them to get off her merchandise and that, you know, I belonged to her and I was her, you know, bitch, if you will. And um, it was it was harrowing and, and dark, and I, I won't really go too into it, but we were able to get out of that um, particular horrible pimp circle, as it's called. Um, and there are certainly other times when I've been in brick kilns that, you know, they get catch wind that I'm there because the only time I can work is when the money lenders are away and the, the, the managers are away. So it's these very quick, brief amounts of time. And suddenly, you know, I'd get a tap on my back and we'd have to cut it out of there, you know. And in, in the, the gold mine shafts, there were, you know, security guards got wind that I was there or a photographer was there with blonde hair and, you know, I had to hide out in the shaft. So there was several experiences like that. But all in all, I, I feel um, quite blessed to have made it out of there, you know. It was scary. Oh, I'm sure. Situations. Tell me about uh, uh, the brothels in India that you visited. Well, I've been to several brothels. Um, in India, in particular, I was in, in an area called Sanagachi, which is inside of Calcutta, and that is one of the largest uh, brothels in Southeast Asia, maybe even the world. It's huge. It's um, a huge community of... Um, um, hundreds and thousands of brothels and tens of thousands of sex workers, many of whom have been trafficked to that place or are born into to, um, to being prostituted in those areas. And the person who brought me in will forever remain anonymous, but it was this young man who had been brought up in, in the area of those brothels in Sanagachi. So he, though he would bring me in, would always have to be detached from being um, you know, known um, with me. So he would be a cleared, you know, 10, 20 yards ahead of me and we'd, and I'd follow behind with my gear hidden in a backpack and my tripod wrapped up like a blanket and um, and I would follow him through these labyrinthine streets full of, you know, sex workers and all these men that are buying women and girls and boys and he would dodge into a building and we had a plan that I'd meet him on the roof and 
I would go into that building, find my way to the top terrace, and we'd meet there. And then he would bring me in to meet some of the women that he knew worked in those particular brothels. And once I had, you know, trust established, I made portraits there. But it was, it was, it was very intense. In fact, um, four months after I was in Sonogachi the first time, I'd gotten news that one of the women that I photographed, her body had been found dead in the gutter outside of the brothel. But what's worth is there was no investigation placed on her demise. And, um, and I think in that we really see that the value placed is really on the money that's made. You know, it's, a, it's, it's over a $200 billion industry at this point annually, illegal, illicit funds made every year, wherein there's no value placed on the individual that is forced, that soul that is forced to endure atrocity in order to make that money for the slaveholders and traffickers, you know. Did you meet a single person who said, hey, this is okay, I'm making money? I think, uh, you know, within the prostitution arena of the world, um, I don't think there's too many little girls that, that grow up and say, wow, I really want to be a prostitute, you know. I really, you know, I, I think there's a, a lot of illusion around prostitution. And, and so much of what even I had originally considered once I started doing this work, I considered to be entrepreneurial women on the streets it was a complete misconception. You know, there many of them are under the arms of traffickers, but you would never know that. And and you know, it's yeah. I don't I don't think we should legalize prostitution, but anyway, we don't have to go there. Well, I, I just want to point out though that, you know, there is some illusion sometimes that this is a victimless crime, they should be allowed to do what they want with their body. Uh, but in fact, <clears throat> It's not that way at all. Uh, there may, I'm sure, uh, probably some very small uh, number of instances where that may possibly be the case. But at the end of the day, uh, this is slavery, and it's slavery that's enforced by abuse, power, drugs, uh, and uh, obviously a very uh, uh, horrible thing. What... Uh, <clears throat> As you mentioned, there are a number of organizations that are trying to eliminate this. It seems as though um, there's not enough emphasis on those who are purchasing these individuals for sex. Uh, why do you think that is? Is this because of a patriarchal society and it's overlooked? Is it because uh, there's a subset of people they just feel are... Um, worthless and uh, if they're in that situation, it's their own fault? Or, or what are your views on that? Well, I, I, I do think we're in a patriarchal society and, um, and I don't think that helps things. But I, I, I think when it comes to, we're talking very distinctly about sex trafficking here, but the overall, you know, there's 50 million people that are enslaved and whether that's in brick kilns or agriculture or domestic servitude or, or prostitution, no matter what, if you're talking about women and girls and, and boys and men too, you know, all of those are under such a heavy force of control. They can, you know, those people are getting raped anyway. So I'll, I'll just throw that in there. But I think that when it comes to, to trafficking and, and, you know, there's very few traffickers that have, that are accountable. 
usually, especially in prostitution, it's the women that are arrested because the assumption is that they're prostitutes. This even happens with minors on the street. You know, you have a 14-year-old girl that's from Guatemala that somehow got into the United States and is prostituting herself. And and so she should be punished. Well, how is a little 14-year-old girl decide she wants to be a prostitute and somehow get to America, you know? Like, we have to start really educating police. In fact, that is being done now. Um, but I think there, there, there is such a, well, I like to say that slavery is hidden in plain sight. And, and even as I mentioned, you know, me, me seeing a prostitute and thinking that she is an entrepreneur, that she has somehow, because of poverty or choice, selected to do this, when in fact, a, a great majority are forced to be trafficked. I'm not saying there aren't those who choose to sell themselves. I'm not saying that. But, um, but those laws do have to change. I mean, the numbers are staggering when you think about um, the amount of traffickers that are not arrested. And um, I, I think that, yeah, if we focus on the buyers, things would end very quickly because it's a demand-driven industry. Well, yeah, and I, I think that that was the point I was trying to make is it's uh, sort of an upside-down situation where Fundamentally, the uh, it's a supply and demand, and typically the demand is made by men, and uh, uh, and that drives it. Uh, and they are not punished, as you point out. The burden is on the person who's prostituting themselves, as if uh, they created this whole narrative, which you just mentioned about the fourteen-year-old girl. Like, oh yeah, she just wanted to be a prostitute in America to get a better life. Well. Uh, I'm not sure if a better life would have not been in Guatemala, considering what she may have to do or how she's treated. Uh, so I, I do think that emphasis uh, has to change. Let me, uh, uh, can you share with us and sort of, and let's talk about the United States for the moment. What do you think drives most um people into prostitution? Uh, is it uh, financial desperation? Is it uh, kidnapping and abuse by the kidnapper? Is it drugs? Or is it uh, people who've suffered deeply and they're in great despair and they have no ability in their mind to get out of the situation? Well, or all I, of the above. It's probably all of the above. I mean, I think poverty around the world is 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 one of the drivers toward people selling themselves, but it's also one of the drivers toward being very easily exploited because, you know, people, for example, don't fall into slavery because they're idiots. They fall into slavery because they've been lied to and they've been coerced and they have been forced. So they're given false promises of an education or a good job and then their identity if they if they have if passports or identity cards are taken from them and they are held under violence. They have no choice to walk away. And so they, they still sort of have to endure whatever the trafficker decides is their fate. In the United States, I don't think it's very different when it comes to trafficking. It's, it's the same thing. So there, there are those who um, are, you know, maybe runaway kids. It's a real danger. They can be picked up within, you know, 48 to 72 hours on the streets and trafficked. It's very simple. Um, um, there's, you know, children that have been molested are more likely, I think, to, to go into prostitution in whatever way they happen to arrive there. 
it, it is not prostitution is not a level of expertise I have, but I I certainly think when it comes to trafficking that we have to have a really holistic approach, and um, there has to be accountability for traffickers. There has to be um, empathy and and help for survivors, but there also has to be help for traffickers. There, you know, it's a holistic approach. Men have to understand that when they're buying a, a, a person, that that person is not an, an object and they shouldn't be bought. You know, it creates this very unhealthy dynamic, um, I believe. And, um, you know, it's, it, gosh, I, I mean, I think the New York Times had said there's over 300,000 kids that are subject to sexual uh, abuse annually, you know, and pornography online using children is become an enormous, uh, you know, very high money-making endeavor. In fact, I was just at the UN with um, Queen Sylvia of Sweden and um, at her childhood protection gala, um, and we were all discussing, you know, how, how, you know, the protection of children is getting more and more challenging because of predators that are online. So it's a very big topic that we have to get our hands around and we need everybody to be a part of the solution. Well, Lisa, maybe you can share with us, uh, I, I think, uh, ways to connect with you. Now, obviously, you have your fine artwork, and I uh, is that lisachristine.com? Indeed so. It's lisachristine.com. With a K, with a K. Not a C-H. I'm a Danish girl in part, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, tell me about Human Thread. So Human Thread Foundation, um, I founded in 2017, and we are really about promoting human dignity by eradicating slavery. And it's very much through um, empathy building, using powerful and ethical visual storytelling to really bend the art toward justice. We do um, exhibitions all over the world. In fact, I just got off a call this morning with the Ghanaian parliament. We're going to be bringing it to Accra um, and uh, to really have an impact in societies to educate people um, as to what slavery is and how it happens so that you know, when you're approached by a cunning trafficker um, or a family is approached, uh, you can recognize them. Well, I think one of the good things is that now there's much more attention uh, to that situation. And, and I'm sure you're aware of uh, the trafficking of people who go through airports where they now look out for children or underage individuals uh, who are potentially sex trafficked and also in bars or other places where uh, people might be vulnerable uh, to sort of educate those who are working at those facilities to uh, see uh, uh, children or others at risk of being um, recruited into, kidnapped to uh, uh, engage in uh, uh, prostitution or, or end up being a slave. Um, what, so what is the uh, website for the Human Thread? Is it humanthread.org? Humanthreadfoundation.org. Okay, great. Mm -hmm. And um, um, maybe you can just share with us any last words or thoughts you have, uh, not only about the issue of sex trafficking per se, but maybe about the power of photography uh, to change people's lives or change their perceptions of the world. 
Well, I shall say that um, what I believe photography has a propensity to do is to transcend language. You, you, you know, it, it's, it's sort of, it's that visceral connection. You know, I, I love to speak at the UN and, and Parliament and all these other places because we have all these statistics and we have all these laws that we need to put in and then we need to implement them. But the minute that we can take a statistic and we can come out of our heads and into our hearts through these images of our brothers and sisters around the world, then I think we have the real power. You know, your, your work is about compassion and um, compassion is at the heart of all of this. It is at the heart of um, inspiring unity in the world. It is in, at the heart of, of understanding that all of us, our birthright really ought to be safety and love and a healthy environment. And I think when we can have a reminder um, of being connected to one another, then, um, you know, when we don't dislocate, we will not create atrocities on one another. You know, that that's my overall feeling. I think you're right. I, I always tell people when you can look at, when you can look at another and see yourself, then you have to do the right thing. Right. So, well, listen, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, be with us today. I really appreciate it. Uh, actually, uh, I'll just mention it's long overdue that you and I get together. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's... I'll say. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, we will, I promise. Yeah. So, uh, Lisa, thank you again. Much love as always, and uh, we will hang out soon. So. Absolutely. Back at you. Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts, or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com.